We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Having a more technically literate society is actually a good thing for the era that we are entering. Not, not that the humanities aren't important. Like, I actually think it'd be great if everyone took an English class or two while they're in college. Like, that's fine. Do you need to take 15 English courses? Like, do you, do you need to do the most niche, like, you know, book club-like classes to get a degree in it where you, at, at the expense of getting a degree in something very useful? Maybe the worst thing about college, those first four years, is not the cost, but the opportunity cost. And if you can't tell me who is the preeminent uh, translator of Iliad and the Odyssey, it's what is Robert Fagles? Fagles. 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 I'm not sure you pronounce right. it actually. I yeah. can't pronounce it, but I would know. If you don't know who the translator is, then your English degree is worth shit because you you actually don't even have like you you read some BS like you know woke intersectionality stuff that was like given to you by a tenured professor who has actually not tied to the great books. And so 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 basically, it's just like you got a woke degree, and it's like that's not an employable. You also thing. don't need a degree to read a. You can literally just read. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. If you're not on Twitter, you have like a lot more armor because then the only way to engage with people who aren't on Twitter, especially who write long form, is like you have to write long form back. And it's like that, that, that bar is really high. And so you can't, res- you can't respond to a, a gray mirror post with a, like a meme or a quote tweet that like riles up your base. Like you have to write something back. And so it's like Noah Smith does it. And then Curtis will write something back at him. And so that, that's a completely different form of online warfare. It's it's more kind of like a different era. Right? I'm actually working on one with Noah now. I've decided to, we're going to trade a little something back and forth. Nice. I don't know the topic. I can't think of, the weird thing is I was going through his tweets and I'm like, I don't disagree with anything. <laughs> Like what are we, what is really the difference here? It's like, maybe like he's, I think he's like framing himself a little bit differently, but like his actual positions are not offensive to me. So I, I think, I think Noah starts from the frame of the establishment more or less works and there are things to be improved. Or maybe we start from the frame of the establishment is broken and we need to actually build new things. Hmm. We sat Noah down on a moment of Zen and we were like, Noah, you're recommending people have kids. You're telling people to move to Austin. You're pro-economic growth. Like, how are you a liberal again? Uh, and you're anti-woke. How are you a liberal again? And he said, 
because I want to give all the money to poor people. Like, I feel like it's just a, a like, I don't know, just a, a tribal affiliation. That I... are, are we also doing the succession thing? Is Sri Ram joining? I, I asked Sri Ram to join, but he said he's, he's, he's either flying to France or he just could make it or something. But uh, he's afraid to debate this. He's yeah. actually afraid of how much work I have put into understanding the. <laughs> And, and he's already been told by everyone that he's wrong. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, Catherine's theory is right. And so I think he's, he's backed out of it for that reason. Ugh, I hate that I haven't seen it. I'm mad. <laughs> well, really um, we, we, should, we, we should do an episode one time where we just talked about secession. Well, <laughs> Have you watched it, Drew? Have you watched it? Are you, or, or am I the only one who's like super into it? And it's Sri Ramani. Who else is? I, I've seen the last few seasons. I haven't seen, seen this season. But, okay. Yeah, we, we, we could talk about it at, at, at the end. Maybe it's a lot, maybe it's a lot of believe. It's, it it's not worth it if Sri Ram's not here. I just I just really wanted everyone to tell Sri Ram he's wrong. Well, I, I could represent his view. Uh, <laughs> the very basic mid view of just like a very literal interpretation of how it ends. Yes. <laughs> everyone telling Sri Ram he's wrong. It sounds yeah. like I've been in that situation before. <laughs> Yesterday we got in our first ever moment of Zen fight, basically. A um, real fight? Or, or not real fight, but a pretty heated uh, disagreement. I think the institutionalist, anti-institutionalist framing is wrong, right? I think it's like a tautology. The same people who are institutionalists, once Elon takes over or that type of person outside of the tribe takes over the institution, they no longer care about the institution. And so it's actually like something more substantively different than just institution versus anti-institution. It's like a set of values and tribe that, than it is like, oh, I believe in the institution versus I don't believe in it. Like the people who are anti-institutionalists would believe in the institution if their people were running it. I agree with that. I would be really happy if everyone who I agreed with was in charge. <laughs> I, would love the, I would love the institutions if that were the case. I think my disagreement is, so you got to split. There's a bunch of institutions that are non-governmental and then there's the government. And I think from the non-governmental side of things, an anti-institutionalist doesn't want, seek to try to capture or reform those institutions, New York Times, Harvard, whatever uh, companies, they just start something new. Like the, 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 that's the Silicon Valley mindset. I think with the government, it's not practical to start a completely new government. Uh, Modular biology is actually trying to build that ideology. But I think with, with it, it comes to government, it's, okay, how can I get the people in power that could actually make a substantive change, specifically in actually reducing the size of the you know, unaccountable bureaucracy or whatever, and, and kind of rip the heart out of the existing thing and then replace it with something that is simpler and more importantly, which I think this is an important anti-institutionalist, you design a system that if you're, you're kind of like sworn enemies take it over, which will eventually happen, they are much more limited in what they can do. That's the beauty of the constitution. It, it dramatically limits the ability to expand power. Um, and so that's, that, to me, that's the anti-institutionalist frame. I actually think the founders of the, the, you know, the constitution, that, that's the frame that they approached uh, setting up the country is, it's like, we, we want to actually limit the amount of power that, that accrues to the federal government. And it's like post FDR, like we really haven't had much of a kind of shift back in that direction. Hey dude, sorry, I'm late. Also the link wasn't in the thing in the calendar, but sorry for, <laughs> sorry for being late. Look at this. Catherine Solana, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having us. We're here to talk about the liberal arts. Catherine, you set the Twitter aflame a couple weeks ago when you woke up one day and chose violence and yeah. started tweeting about liberal arts and then continuously quote tweeting for the people who are attacking you. What, what, why don't you 
share what you were describing in that tweet and uh, talk a little bit about some of the ideas around it. Yeah, no, it's funny because I, I didn't know the guillotine people were that enthused about liberal arts. Now I do. It's also my first time. Like Solana gets this like every week. Like every week, someone's coming after him with 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 pitchforks, and it's like this was this was my first time. So it was it was great. The guillotine. Before you get into your story, I mean, when you say the guillotine Twitter, it's a very specific subgroup or subculture within Twitter that is extremely violent. It is when your first time. My first time was on Christmas Eve, twenty twenty. I was alone, and it. It was, it is disorienting. Like it's crazy to have thousands of people in your mentions, like guillotine gifts. Where's your address? Like they are full on Marxist. They want you to die. It's, it's crazy. It's like the first time is, is crazy. You get used to it though. Yeah. Shocker, yeah. Shocker yeah. At this point, but, uh, but they're, they're very enthused about English majors. And so I, I 100% stand by this tweet. Like I actually think it's probably like, I've tweeted a version of this for a very long time. It was actually like a hopeful tweet. It's like things are getting better in this country because we have fewer and fewer people realizing that college doesn't lead to a job and that you have to major in the right things in college. Uh, so I, I thought it was going to be like this nefarious, like, oh, yeah, of course, like it's really important to learn math in college. But but it's sort of it was interpreted in the wrong way. So there's, the, the way I look at it is there's two very dangerous memes that our generation in particular, and we have a lot of English majors on, on this chat right now, like that we that we were sold. And they were dangerous memes. The first one was that everyone needs to go to college. And this was a political meme that both Democrats and Republicans decided, and this was about 40 years ago, uh, that we were going to subsidize college with cheap debt that actually isn't that cheap for the individual, um, nor the country. Uh, it would decimate vocational schooling. So when you had more and more young people deciding to go to college, it completely decimated the, the other path, which is get a technical degree or a two-year associate's degree and go do something that's you know community, more focused on the community. and then. When you get to college, the first thing you were told in college is it does not matter what you major in. You are now here. You are now chosen. And therefore, you should do what you enjoy. And so you have a generation or two. It's actually more like two generations of people who went to college, have $100,000 to $200,000 of debt if they chose a private university. It's a little less of public, but still an extreme amount of debt. And they were, told, they were given no guidance on what to major in so that they could find a job. And if you're like me, and I actually think, Solana, we might have been the same cohort. If you're like me and you graduated in 2008 <laughs> with an English or a political science degree, you did not find a job that year. If you had a finance or a computer science degree, you probably had a hard time finding a job that year. So what's happened since 2008 that I think is actually really important and what the, the graph that I actually you know, tweeted out actually shows this is that in 2008, kids woke up and it, it took four years for, for, for young people to cycle through this because people who were, you know, freshmen in 2008 may have already majored in liberal arts degrees or may not, you know, may have kind of bought the meme. But in 2011, three things happened. People started majoring in computer science, and we've seen a 4x increase in computer science since 2011. Um, engineering degrees have now surpassed all of liberal arts combined, and that took place over the last 10 years. Uh, and then the, the most interesting thing that I think happened is that we now have sort of this cultural sea change that I mark at 2011, because I think the best movie about technology came out in 2011, and that's The Social Network. So our generation looked at Wall Street. I know, Antonio, you probably watched Wall Street many times growing up. And it was like, that's the coolest movie about the the, the industry that was, you know, it was, it, was, it was a movie that kind of made Wall Street cool. And the same thing happened with The Social Network. Uh, and Tarantino has written a lot about this. This is not like my original idea. This is like Tarantino saying this is the best movie that led to a cultural change. So now when you actually look at the statistics, 
we have more computer science majors. We have more people going to college, deciding that they're going to use their college degree to get a job and not to like read Kant under a tree. So that was the tweet. I think I said something about like book club degrees are declining. That's a good thing. And, and you know, Twitter, Twitter didn't like that. I think what you're saying about the movie, I mean, there's a lot to talk about there. And I'm sure probably, Eric, you want to jump in and moderate in some way. But a quick anecdote on the social network. I met Peter that year. The movie was coming out and he, they were worried about it for a minute. And then they decided in the end uh, that it actually just made everyone look cool. And they were like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. This is nothing to be like afraid of or worried about. Like this just looks awesome, actually. And, uh, and they embraced it at that point. And that was also the year, by the way. Uh, so 2000, I think it was 2009, was the first year of the 20 under 20. Feels, well, I'm going to pay 20 people to drop out of college. When he did that, that year, it was absolute like pandemonium online. People thought that he was a monster. They were like, how could you teach people this? It is an insane lesson to be absorbing or whatever else. Fast forward now, that's table stakes. I think everyone understands that like college is actually for most people. I would say, I'm going to say most people. I would say taking on debt for most people to go to college is a, a problem at this point. And, uh, and that's kind of like table stakes to enter the college conversation. Just one comment on the social network thing about tech embracing it. It's funny. Obviously, it's about Facebook. It's actually not very accurate at all about the history of Facebook. It was before I was there. Facebook did an entire field trip they rented out a movie theater, I think, in Mountain View. And the at the time, the company must have been maybe sub thousand people. And they went and just watched it because they just embraced it. They said, oh, you know what? It's actually kind of cool looking. I think Catherine's right, too. It's like, well, that, is that the best tech movie? I can't think of another that does anything even close to that for, you know, this is, I mean, it, you leave it thinking this is basically good. What happened was, was there's that one weak sort of monologue they give mark at the end you know you better be a good person or whatever and it's kind of like okay like and then you move on but it was i don't know that it was meant to be a positive portrayal of tech i actually think it was meant to be a negative portrayal of tech but in the same way that wall street was was a movie that was supposed to destroy wall street it led to if you look at actual the actual statistics like young people across the country were like i gotta go be a stockbroker like i gotta be like gordon gecko and it was the same thing that happened with social network people were like mark zuckerberg like wow like that's that's cool i want to go build something and so it actually led i i think there was this cultural moment but then also this sort of other end of it which was you promised us and, and this is a, a whole other conversation about elite overproduction that you promised us if we went to college and listened to you that we would be able to get a job and like for the kids that did everything right that like you know got into the best university that like went there, studied really hard, read all the books Like you know, for a long time, if you got a history degree from a great university, you were told that you were going to get some terrific job coming out. And then when that didn't happen and that stopped happening in 2008, like that's when I think people started waking up and saying, okay, like I should probably learn something useful. And that sort of turned the tide too. Yeah. And I think you, you also had YC, you had the rise of cloud computing, SaaS, mobile, like S curve starting. So that 10 year period, if you were kind of a younger person who had any ability to build an app or, or anything with a computer, the amount of wealth creation that was available to you relative to the person who was trying to follow the track of the early 2000s of being on Wall Street, you were told that that was the path. And then the disparity of, of kind of status and wealth that accrued to the group of people that were playing around in technology rather than on Wall Street was yeah. pretty significant. Some universities are starting to, they're starting to have entrepreneurial centers, they're starting to change curriculums, but there's a lot of universities that aren't going to be able to make the transition from pure, like I'm teaching English to, okay, now I'm going to teach prompt engineering. 
And those universities are pushing, it's a lot of people are pushing really hard against this fact that like, we need to start educating people in a different way than we did 20 years ago. So like, I, I actually think this is an important truth. It's like, I, I, I you know, it, it's something that needs to be talked about more, how we change the entire educational system so that particularly the kids in the middle have a shot at getting a great job. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. And Antonio, I, I'd be curious, like, so the pushback, because I, I quote tweeted Catherine's thing and I had my own set of reply pieces, but I didn't, I didn't have the Democratic Socialists of America on, on my, my timeline, so that was nice. Um, but but I get a lot of people who, and for for the record, I was an English major, so I we're, feel we're like all I, the I, I, I'm a uh, like I have the the protected status finally for for one discussion. Um, well, you have but it, you have Latinx as well. Oh, white supremacy! Come on, I'm, I'm wronged. <laughs> this week. Yeah, the New Yorker has now deemed me a white supremacist. Yeah, so you know, at the joke I was making is it's it's Latin American history X is what I am. So. <laughs> So, so Antonio, I, it, there's this, this kind of like, well, it, you know, we want people to be well-rounded. And I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think you grew up in a, a family that made you do engineering and, and I would call you as well-rounded as anyone. I mean, you, yeah. you have a best-selling book, like you yeah. talk about some French prize every episode. I can't even pronounce <laughs> it. Like maybe you give your perspective on someone who, who, who's a PhD physics dropout yeah. who was well-rounded. Yeah, and I, and I dropped out uh, as the group snob, not because of Wall Street, some movie, which, by the way, is a great movie. It's actually Michael Lewis's Liar's Poker is why I dropped out of Berkeley, actually. Um, which, by the way, he actually is on the record quoted as saying, that was a cautionary tale and became a siren song, and that was never the intent. <laughs> but that's what it became, um, which, which is what I literally like, looked, took one look at Berkeley, took one look at Liar's Poker, which was like a horror show of like traders yelling at you in the most degenerate culture. I'm like, I want this. <laughs> and I literally quit and got on the plane to New York. Um, yeah, so my situation was strange. I actually take a slightly contrarian view. I think Catherine is obviously correct for the middle tier of students. I still think elite education for anything, any Harvard fucking degree at all, is still probably worth getting. In my case, it's a long story and it'll sound whiny, but whatever, you ask me. In my case, came from the fringes of like elite life, like in Miami, like New York and LA were like this very distant foreign thing. And it, yeah, my parents came as some of the people here in the 60s and they were raised in like Midwestern America in like the post-war boom in which going to a solid state school was a perfectly decent thing to do. And if anything, Harvard was for wealthy, weird elites and like waspy people. When in fact, of course, you know, Christopher Lash, the elites, like it, it, it had become a different thing. It had become a meritocracy in the sense that the best and the brightest from everywhere were being shunted to the same schools and then being put into this meritocratic tier that became the elite. And of course, my parents not being elite didn't really know that living at the fringes of the sort of American experiment. So off I went to some relatively low prestige, but decently solid um, state school and I realized I was totally like a fish out of water and that this was like a complete and total mistake. And I applied for transfer admissions to all the elite schools. My parents refused to pay for it. Um, and at the time I like, I didn't know what to do. I was like a 19 year old, like alone in the world. I didn't know what to do. So I stuck out my degree. I actually switched. I believe it or not, I started my job. My first W2 was actually as a journalist. So I was, I was a, 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 a city desk intern at the Miami Herald and Sun Sentinel in Fort Lauderdale. Those was my first job as a writer, but I realized I would never be able to compete with the elites on, on anything like an even playing field in humanity. So I had to do STEM. And so I, I literally switched mid-college 
and literally did every waking hour study and got degrees in chemistry and physics, and then applied to grad school in physics, thinking, well, at least in the sciences, I can, again, compete equally. Of course, total fucking mistake. Why? What, what was it? It was 1998, 1989. What was going on? The first tech boom, which I totally missed. Of course, I got into every grad school program that I applied to, Stanford, Berkeley, Harvard, everything, right? And of course, I went like an idiot because the whole point of going to an elite school is seeing how elites think and what they're doing, right? And being surrounded by that milieu. And I didn't know it at all. So instead, off I went and I pissed away four to five years of my life, missed the first tech boom that could have made me wealthy or whatever. I just watched from afar from Berkeley and finally came to my senses in 2005 when I, met, when I read Michael Lewis's book. But still, I, I, it's funny, randomly, let me just share the anecdote that I shared in the group just two seconds ago. It, it was like that, you know, there's like when it's Paltrow movie Sliding Doors in which mm -hmm. he misses a subway. And like, I forget which is which, but basically in, in one in one terminus of that timeline, she's like married and happy and great. In another, she's living some nightmarish life. Um, I met my sort of the other Sliding Doors narrative, some guy from your world, Solana, by the way, finest fun guy, who also fringes of America, not elite parents, whatever, and went to, I think it was Dartmouth. And... Peter interviewed him and basically said, oh, I went to Dartmouth. He got hired in a second. And then he just instantly went to the elite track. And that's where he's lived for the past, whatever, 10, 15 years. You probably forgot who it is at this point. And it's like, ah, that's what would have happened. <laughs> and I could have studied anything on that track. I could have studied literally basket weaving. And I, you know, would have tracked where I am now or even better, right? And so that's where I like, I, I agree with Catherine when it comes to the mid-tier. Most people probably shouldn't be going and getting $200,000 of debt for a mediocre degree. But I, I, I mean, I think there's a reason people still pay huge amounts of money for a Stanford MBA or Harvard degree. I, I, I agree with that. Like, I, I'm not, I'm actually not anti-college. Um, and I think if you are first generation to go to college and you get into Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, Yale, like you should 100% go. I am anti the meme that you get when you get there, which is it doesn't matter what you study. Because if you are a kid who gets like a full scholarship to one of these universities, like you should be doing the thing that you know will help you get a job. And that is not in this, in this market that we are in, that is not an English degree. Like, and, and that's where we should be super honest. And I think those kids actually need the most handholding. I hope they get it at those universities. They certainly don't get it at the tier down. Like maybe the top five universities, they get a little handholding where it's like, no, actually you need to study economics. You need to study uh, finance if there's a business program. Like you need to study things that will actually help you. But like, they're not getting it, I'd say at the vast majority of universities. So I, I agree generally that it's a huge problem. I agree roughly with your tweet, Catherine. I think that what people get at the elite universities is not learning about how elites work, and it's certainly not what they're studying. It's just the network. It's like, you know, the most powerful, well-connected people in the country, they're your friends. You're like, even if you're, especially if you're like lower class or middle class, suddenly you're being invited to someone, and this happened to friends of mine who went to Stanford, suddenly they're being invited to summer in Cape Cod with someone's dad who's running the political campaign of whoever the fuck, like this for me growing up where I grew up, I didn't know any of those people and I never would. And I didn't go, go to elite school. I met Peter randomly through the Seasteading Institute. We were both anarchists at the time. It was like very, very random. What actually, like the, the, the network is the point and what all those second tier below schools miss is like you can pay a lot of money and go to school and study whatever you want, but you're still not going to have the network. Like at the end of the day, a e degree in econ does not matter nearly as much as a shitty degree at Harvard when you know the most powerful people in the country. It doesn't matter what you study. Like, I don't think it matters. But in general, like most people's degrees are worthless. Like people are not really learning too much at college. Even coders, like people are getting computer science degrees. Most people who I knew up until recently who were engineers, they learned it while building video games with their friends in high school. Like that's where their journey began. It wasn't because they got a CS degree at Stanford. I think the degree really just almost matters not at all. It's just the network. Yeah, I think that there's also an effect here is 
when we have these discussions, people are, it's like Lake Wobegon. Like everyone thinks that they're the outlier or they're the special snowflake on the end of the curve when the reality is all this policy should be based on median. And, and especially when the government is subsidizing something like they are with student debt. Like we as a society should not be subsidizing things that don't add value to society. And a median English major does not add any value to society. A top 1% English major or, or whatever, like I actually think that there's a whole bunch of things that can, that can you know, add. But the reality is, is if, if you're kind of a 50th percentile English major, we shouldn't have been putting any, any amount of support for you and you should be living, market forces should be affecting that. Even the top one, English majors don't matter at all. I think that's maybe this is like a slightly separate conversation. Like there is not the top 1% of English majors also don't matter. There's no version of English major that matters. English major is like a degree that you can do as a super elite rich person. And because your degree doesn't matter because you're entering a world where all that matters is you went to some elite private school and met a bunch of other elite privates and who were all were rich. It will never matter. But I, I, I think, think we're saying the same thing. 1% means you're by definition elite. So it's yeah. actually more about where you, the institution of the, of the people getting those degrees rather than the individual themselves. Are you guys saying that a society where people uh, read the great books of our time does not make us a better republic, does not make us a better democracy? Like what percentage say, of those people are actually doing that? What percentage of the people are doing that? Oh, you mean an Engli English majors? Yeah. Like, they're not. Like, yeah, English degrees are not doing that. <laughs> they're not teaching the great books. Yeah, you're doing that privately <laughs> wherever you are at this point in, in time like yeah but no one's doing that no one's doing that at like nyu's english program Here, what, what here's, a, here's a really basic thing so antonio tweeted that mushrooms thing where he said don't read the odyssey on mushrooms last weekend or whatever <laughs> someone in the replies asked him what translation of the odyssey he was reading and if you can't tell me who is the preeminent uh translator of uh you know the the uh, iliad and the odyssey it's what is Robert Fagles? Fagles. 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 I'm not sure you pronounce right. it actually. I yeah. can't pronounce it, but I would know. If you don't know who the translator is, then your English degree is worth shit because you, <laughs> you actually don't even have like you. You read some BS like you know woke intersectionality stuff that was like given to you by a tenured professor who has actually not tied to the great books. And so, so, so basically, it's just like you got a woke degree. And it's like, that's not an employable You also thing. don't need a degree to read a, you can literally just read. Do people realize, you can just, you can read a book. Whenever you want to read a book, you can go to the library and you want to pay for a book on Amazon for $10 and you can get a book and you can read it on the weekends. It's fine. <laughs> but but that's the, the famous scene in Goodwill Hunting, right? It's like, you know, you, you could have got, uh, you know, college education for $1.50s and late fees at the public all, library. And then, he goes, and then he says to him, at least I have a degree from Harvard. We all think we're that guy, don't we? In this, in this chat specifically, we all think we're Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting. We all have that like Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting chip on our shoulder. Solana, you have an English degree, right? Uh, a little bit complicated. I uh, am like the worst version of this that exists in this chat, maybe in all of San Francisco. I went to, a, I basically got into like a, an honors program at BU, which was like a make your own major program. After two years, core and it was there like a quite elite thing to do, which was really important to me at the time because I wanted to prove that I was the best student and I was one of the best students, but it tracked me to something that ended up being like quite cartoonish in hindsight, which was I made my own major. Basically, I, I just studied English and history, but I called it something stupid. I'm mainly only STEM degree, all this shit, all this shit, everyone, this is like the San Francisco Miami thing with Solana. Everyone here is shitting on English degrees. You all have English degrees. I'm the only one respecting it. I'm the one who doesn't have one. It's incredible. No, you weren't respecting it. You're respecting Harvard degrees. You're an elite. You're, you're, you're a person looking into the elite world, like, like, like obsessed with elitism and things like this. And I get that. That's not the same thing as respecting an English degree. I think you respect. No, no, but, well, hold on. But dance, 
the, the argument Dan is making is that it's a woke review, which I agree. But imagine it was a great books curriculum. Imagine they actually did read. Well, I, there's that, yes. I don't think it, I don't think that have like a true great books curriculum and you can go to one of those. But how many kids opt into that? Very few. I mean, these are like tiny universities that actually sit around and do like the true great books. What curriculum. is it? St. Lawrence but, or? St. John's. St. John's. John's. That's not an elite university. It's not an elite right. university. But let, let's steal man this for a second, because people are going to criticize this as saying, well, you're, you're, you're mischaracterizing his work. Imagine there was a solid great look. Here's the real argument behind the humanities thing. At least the best version of the argument is the humanities are worth preserving. People who know what happened in book 23 of the Odyssey, that, that, that's a formative piece of culture that you just need to perpetuate. And without universities actually perpetuating it and being the monasteries of our current you know, society, which is like a wash in TikTok style popular culture, it's going to simply go away and disappear. What would you yeah. make of that argument? I think I agree with, with that. And I think it's like you want politicians, you want lawyers. You want certain businessmen to get a degree like that and then move on into things that are more productive in society and you perpetuate those values. I think for most of the great positions in America, the important positions, you don't need any particular, you don't need one degree or another. A philosophy degree is as good as an econ degree. Like you're not actually, how many people are going and using an econ degree every single day? It's a very small percentage of people. So among the kind of what should be the nation's elite, the people who are running the country, I would agree that something like that, if it's at a really good university and it's really, really, really rigorous and there's some status associated with it and you're still meeting people who can help you in your life get interesting careers, then there's a lot of value to that. And my point was more about overproduction of, of everyone feeling that they should aspire to the degree. Not, not that the humanities aren't important. Like, I actually think it'd be great if everyone took an English class or two while they're in college. Like, that's fine. Do you need to take 15 English courses? Like, do you, do you need to do the most niche, like, you know, book club like classes to get a degree in it where you at, at the expense of getting a degree in something very useful like that? That was all, that's the trend I'm pointing out, like the fact that we now have a 35 percent increase in CS degrees in universities in America is a very, very good thing. And the fact that we have a 25 percent increase over the last five years in history and English degrees means that like young people are opting out of things that are not be useful for them. I do not think that you actually need a CS degree to be an engineer. And I not think, I know, we all know that. We've seen it. I think actually like making that a degree that is ex expected that you go to college for four years to study CS, you can get an engineering job. After we just ran the program, we just saw that you didn't need that to build the most important companies that have been built in the last, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Like, why are we doing that? So I actually think a lot of those people are not going to build companies. And so so the reason I'm excited about people becoming more technically literate is because a lot of those people are going to go into government bureaucracy. They're going to, to go into the DOD. They're going to go into like different organizations and they're going to understand tech in a way that the previous generations had no, un like no understanding. Like think, think of like lawyers today. Like when you look at like the Supreme Court makeup, every single person on the Supreme Court is a philosophy, English, history degree major. Like, and then they went to law school. And they didn't, they likely didn't take many math classes. They sure, like they did not take any engineering classes. Like we do not have a technically literate part, uh, you know, part of like lawyers and, and sort of the elite society there. And so if you have sort of a, an understanding of how technology works coming out of your undergraduate degree, if you decide to go into law, if you decide to go into politics, there's just a much better understanding of how commerce works, of how industry works. Like I, that, that's the thing I'm more excited about. Like when, when I said it's going to be good on like every dimension, it means like, Having a more technically literate society is actually a good thing for the era that we are entering. Um, and, and, and it is zero sum. It's not like, you know, if, if universities are pushing English degrees, they're pushing it at the expense of engineering degrees and vice versa. If they're pushing STEM, they're pushing it at the expense of liberal arts. And I, and I do think that we need to be pushing a little bit more of this math, finance, 
you know, technical education for, for people who do get a four-year degree. Here's a, here's a radical take, possibly the most cynical take. I think Paul Graham has an essay in which he said, you know, the efficacy of Harvard in terms of being a feeder school to the Valley would really be the same. They could just sit there and sing campfire, sing campfire songs for four years, as long as the selection criterion is the same. Right. So one argument for studying Latin and Greek, for example, in the old British system, was that basically it was just an extended IQ test. And that really you're just filtering out the smartest people in society. It doesn't matter what the hell they learn, as long as you're literally filtering for the 1% cognitively. And that this is all really just proxy for that. And we're just tricking ourselves into thinking, well, it's worth learning this or that. And it really is just a filter mechanism. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, but, but that, that was the, the democratization of upper uh, higher education. You know, it's like you're, you're going from 5% of people or 10% of people with a college degree to 40% of people with a college degree. And I, I don't, I, it's, a, it's a manufactured set of, set of requirements because to your point, Solana, you're not actually learning any of the stuff in college to be able to be a knowledge worker. You learn on the job, right? I had an English degree. I went and got a job in management consulting. I didn't know how to use a spreadsheet. I came out of that three years later and I can make slides and spreadsheets and, and kind of approach problems in a structured way. Didn't learn any of that in college, right? And I think the, to your point about the computer science thing, uh, I'll have people be like, oh, why don't you just hire some kids from Stanford for your startup? And be like a kid from Stanford working, like I'm basically training him how to do work. Whereas we're, we're hiring L7 engineers who've worked for 10 years. And you know what the number one school that I love hiring people from? Waterloo. Why? Because it's a co-op program where they go for five years and they actually work while they're in college. And so I think like the, the whole association of, of a degree being tied to work is not not productive and that, and, and that is a modern conception like and, and that's what i'm right. saying like like it, it didn't used to be that you wouldn't learn anything in college that would be useful on the job like that is a modern like that is that is that but is wasn't it because most people didn't go to college and we had a lot of jobs so it's like schools. like exactly so maybe i agree with that like we need more people. i think the problem is not that people aren't learning the right things in college the problem is too many people are going to college like it should be, uh, there should be a lot less liberal arts colleges. There should just be the top tier colleges and the very top students, the very smartest people go to them and everybody else find something else to do. You know, you're going to vocational schools, you know, you are, I didn't, I kind of feel like honestly engineering is a vocation. I don't think that you need to maybe like computer science, at least to me, for the most part, feels like a vocation. I don't think you need to be going to a four year. I know that you don't need to be going to a four year college program to become an engineer. And I, I agree with Catherine, your point before. But yeah, I think the problem is not that they're learning the wrong things. I think the problem is they're going at all. But but that's that's because the government subsidizes them. If you and, actually put market forces, no one is taking out money on their own behalf if they had no floor from the government. Yeah, so you remove the subsidies, you, you you remove people. It's from very difficult scholars. to get any sort of yeah subsidy to go to vocational school, and there aren't many vocational schools. Like this is the other thing. Like we we might have like it, it, Antonio, you've talked about how Europe has a great network of vocational schools, and they like they self sort very very early, knowing that that this is this is actually good for society that people kind of you know, pursue the things that they're actually good at. We don't have a vocational school network in the same way that Europe has it. And, and, and we certainly, it's, it's, it's declined over the last 40 years at the expense of everyone trying to go to either two or four year programs. So, so I, that? I had it in high school. It's just that it, it was seen as really for the dumbest people ever, which was so tragic. It was, the status was like, it was really seen as like a low status poor person. Like you just fucked your whole life by going to Votech and only the worst students would do it. Right. And those HVAC installers today are doing way better than any of the people who went and got a communications well, degree from I think that even some people went on to become HVAC installers. I don't, because the status associated with Votech was so low in my school, I don't know that a lot of those people were doing that well. I think they really were. They ended up being the worst students who were going to these programs. And I, I don't know what they ended up. 
I don't know. But, there's a labor shortage all the time and in all these different professions and, and people make good money. To be yeah, but we had it. So like we had, yeah. at least in my, and I was in a middle, middle sort of working ish class town. Like we had that school. The problem was like this cultural problem where the assumption is you're supposed to go to college. And if you don't, you're a failure. And people internalize that. There is a huge cultural problem with that. Like we need to celebrate vocational degrees and we certainly need to celebrate those schools. I do think that there has been a problem. Like we we had, we had a school like that in my hometown. It got shut down. I mean, it's actually difficult to teach young people how to do these trades. Like, you know, like it's a totally different way of learning. And because I think, because to your point, I do think that like for, for a very long time, the culture said you have to go to college On, on both sides of the aisle said, you have to go to college. This is what's going to make the American dream. Similar to homeownership, there's only a few markings and going to college is that. And so I, I do think like taking away the sort of, you know, take, taking away any sort of status that having a great job that's in the vocations was probably one of the biggest mistakes. So Antonio's point, by the way, is I actually think like the, the dirty thing that no one or dirty secret no one really wants to talk about is it's, it's a backdoor IQ test, right? So what going to a college and then based on where that college ranking is, the employer gets to basically use the proxy, right? Like employers don't ask for the SATs, they, they use where you went to college. And then they basically can say, do you have a conscientiousness enough of like you made it through four years of living on your own and not, not falling out of school and some level of like passing grades. And so, so the Europeans already do this. They just have a way more rigorous process. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is in France, in the UK, and maybe even in Germany. You take like a really serious set of tests in high school and that dictates where you go. And like that, and that's like an accepted model. And it's like, if you don't get the best scores, you don't get to go to the elite level colleges. We do that too. We do that too. But no, we, we all try to make it. It's like, oh, I got to college as like this binary thing. When the no, reality is- No, the SATs like, and the people with the best SATs in general do go to these schools. Like, but we- I mean, well, there are some exceptions, which we don't have to get into here. But but we subsidize the entire 40% of people getting college degrees for the most part. Like the government is willing to basically say that your degree from this institution in communications or English or whatever, oh, that's an equivalent, like from a from a value standpoint, which obviously it's not in the market. So, so I recently I recently admitted on one of Eric's other podcasts, Upstream, great podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, that my first job when I couldn't get a degree uh, because I had it, or when I couldn't get a job because I had an English degree was actually nannying in Austria. So I moved to Austria and was an au pair. And the thirteen year old I was taking care of, I, she was the oldest I was taking care of, was taking tests to figure out which high school she would get into to decide the entire course of her life. And she had an option at 13. She wanted to be a fashion designer. She wanted to go to a trade high school that would help her make clothes. But she also spoke five languages. Her parents were exceptionally smart. And her parents were like, absolutely not. You were going to the language school and you were going to be a diplomat. Like it was already set for her. And like, she went to the language school. And like, that's at 13 across Austria, everyone is sorted. And like, you can say that's a very extreme way to do it. It's a wrong way to do it at 13. Like your life shouldn't be set. But like that, that is sort of the European way. That's how I, every rich person I know who went to Stanford is doing that with their kids right now in kindergarten, it starts and they track them the whole entire way through every elite institution, all the way to Stanford. We all are just coming from an experience where we're completely blind to this. We, we just did not see it growing up. We, I drew, I truly think that we all are a little bit blind in this way. We do have that here. It's just not for us. Well, it's, it's, it's not quite as institutional too, right? Like in Germany. My German girlfriend in grad school, I forget what the name of the association is, but there's like the high IQ society that every high school kid is part of. And they, I mean, it's, it's much more overt. It's like a part of policy, right? It's funny. Solana's going to hate when I say this, but in the US, they, they, do, they always do the right thing, but always in the, most, in the most backhanded, inefficient way possible, right? Rather than just admitting that it's basically an IQ test, 
they and then also there's economic factors that go along with it again like why didn't i end up in one of these things that it was more like oh it just felt like this rich kid thing and that's less the case i think in in, in europe and it's maybe they have more, more of a, an appreciate i don't know i'm not don't have a european experience but are they like more open to elitism are they down yeah, yeah definitely yeah, yeah. yeah i mean the <laughs> yeah, the uni university never became, I was looking at uh, university, tertiary education completion rates by country to see if my intuition was correct. They're, they're like 10 plus percent lower in Europe than it is here. And the feeling is like it never, college didn't become like an everything, an everybody thing in Europe the way that it did here with the GI Bill. And it's, I don't know, it's just different. Not, not everybody. In scan I, feel, I feel like you can just go whenever you want to go and get a degree. It's also a lot cheaper. And then it's true. When I was hanging around Europe in like my grad school days, you'd meet a lot of people who were like seventh year undergrad student. And there was no reason for them to leave because they could just kind of coast along. And that's probably not great at it. But, but that's the surplus elites, right? It's, it's the difference between like the Europeans have whatever rate and we have a higher rate. And our rate is free market. So you have all these administrators and all this other BS that increases the cost and the government's willing to subsidize it. It, it's a grift. It's, it's, it's an actual grift. That's the real reason is they're buying votes. It, it, all of these... All of these schools are filled with administrators they don't need and random people working there. You look at the, the at who is being paid at each one of these schools. It's massive, massive, massive bureaucracy. They're all they're all Democrats. That's that is that is just what it is. It's a Democrat vote buying scheme. And by the way, they don't have to pay taxes, right? So all these endowments, like oh, the endowments and, is another thing, yeah, right. And we have to be careful because you know obviously endowments they invest in for capital funds, including but our fund. The reality, <laughs> the, the reality is, it's it's whole system and so they, they bought us too yeah. <laughs> I, I i think like my, my i have a pretty radical view in the sense that i think that like universities and churches you gotta pay taxes sorry like they're the same thing yeah and i it, it, it different sides of the political spectrum right like ultimately it's like wait a second you get to own real estate for free and like all this stuff church <laughs> yeah i'm fine with church though. one of them actually is church and i have no rational reason whatsoever to support the church thing but i'm supporting it it's just a feeling. I just know that it's right. Well, if you admit you're a well, you're a good papist. <laughs> if you admit your religion, you get tax breaks, but you also have separation of church and state. If you don't admit religion, your religion, you can influence policy. Ah, uh, yes. So the but, churches are de facto political institutions, and we're all supposed to pretend that they're not. They're like religious political institutions. They're not just there for the benefit of the America's welfare. Like it's the, or the youth of the of the world. That's not why they're there. They're they're trying to shape every. They're trying to shape the world like every other. Well, the entire nonprofit system, like nonprofits, it, it, it's, yeah. nonprofits are classified very differently. We got to shut that down. That that is the main one in San Francisco. I mean, you're you're basically describing the cathedral, right? So the cathedral is a church. It's just a church for elite woke people. <laughs> So Solana, is this when you announce your race for soup in San Francisco? Is this, is this the <laughs> Did I read the show notes correctly? They can't have me right now. I can't do it. I was thinking about it today, though. Every now and then I closer. <laughs> it would be cool if I went back in a blaze of glory. I think I think you should run a total political machine. It should be like Tammany Hall, but Solana Hall. Patronage, the spoil system. Somebody gets whacked. Like the whole fucking thing. You should totally do it, Solana. You just gotta, just, you just got to lean into it. I have a radical thought about San Francisco, and I would like to hear what you guys think about it. And that is that actually San Francisco is the most sane city in the country. It is the closest to fixing the city. And this is why. Because San Francisco is the reason that we are hearing all of these problems about San Francisco is because San Francisco has the highest number of competent, 
wealthy, intelligent people who are furious about the status quo and actually want to change it. So they're talking about it all the time. And because of social media, that's what we see. The signal is actually like what we're actually seeing online when you look at just the discourse of local politics nationwide is, is rel- it's like basically a, um, a survey of the regions that care the most. And San Francisco is the highest by far, I would say. It punches way above its weight in terms of just population and also problems. The crime rate in San Francisco is bad. Of course, they're all bad. It's not as bad as New York, not nearly as bad as Chicago. Who's talking about Chicago? Nobody. It's always darkest before the dawn, Solana. I think San Francisco is like, it's bleak that it's the best that we have, but I think it, I think it weirdly is the closest we have to turning around and really a radical position. I understand that, but I think that I'm right. Well, one question for you, Solana, I've, meant, I've been meaning to ask you this, and it came up in, in, a, in a show we recorded yesterday. One thing that I think you can validly critique tech about is that it hasn't invested in civil society in the way that other industries have, right? And that, I mean, it's, this has always been a kind of a gold rush town, so I don't know that tech is frankly, the first person to have done the first industry to have done this. But it definitely seems the case that like, I think I mentioned that, like, again, you go to New York, and you go to the Met, and every hedge fund asshole has their name on the fucking thing, because they actually compete by supporting the arts. And there's a little bit of that here. I mean, you obviously have Benioff Hospital and, and Zuckerberg and stuff. But broadly speaking, it just that level of wealthy patronage just doesn't exist. And walking around the city, it doesn't feel like a wealthy city, although it is. So what, what do you make of that? Can, can tech actually be criticized for this? Can it fix it? Should we just change? We've, we've talked about this, I think, a little bit. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg did it with the hospital, right? And what, the backlash was tremendous. And so the weird thing that happens in San Francisco is that it doesn't actually improve your status when you put your name on things. If, I don't know what that strange cultural thing is. For, I've written, this is the piece, I wrote a piece in 2020, I think, called Extract or Die, where that is where I first was like, we actually totally failed here. This is our fault. This city is fucked up and it's we're the reason. We should have just taken over. That's the thing that we should have done. We should have been in charge by now. We've been here for decades. Why aren't we running the thing? I think you're right about the institution thing. I think it's you're right in general, tech has not done nearly enough. I just see signs that I've never seen before of people really getting involved. And that involvement correlates exactly with meaningful political change. There was a lot of tech money behind the board of uh, the board of education recall, the Chesa Bowden recall, which I thought were outliers because they were weird off no, they were not in November. They were weird um, off election day elections. I don't know what they call them. Weird elections. I don't know. They were not general elections. But then the gen- off cycle. So then the general election happened though, and it was also a good. It was also a good election for moderate people. Those are all good signs. So, so I think tech does have a problem, or San Francisco has a problem that it will never be able to fully solve, which is yes, people are fed up with crime. But because of the, the exact people that you're talking about that are like getting more involved, have a hard time saying that drug use is bad. Like there, there's this sort of like cognitive dissonance of, okay, like people should be able to live and let live. That's the spirit of San Francisco. San Francisco's always had sort of this culture of people doing drugs and like they're fine with that. But the minute that their cars are constantly, you know, lo- or broken into, their houses are broken into, and the minute that people start dying in the streets, it's like, okay, this is, this is really bad. But when you say actually these things are linked, like that the drug use, you, you can't divorce fentanyl use from the crime. I actually think it's really hard for a lot of the elites in San Francisco to get their mind wrapped around that, largely because drugs have always been part of like, like the last 50 years have been part of San Francisco culture. So I don't know if there's going to be something that shifts there where it's like, okay, actually fentanyl is not the same thing as smoking pot. Like the California libertarianism is hasn't been good for a lot of these cities in the way that we thought it would be. But, but at some point, there's going to be a reckoning of actually this drug use and this drug culture is really, really bad for these cities. I think we're there. 
I mean, I, I, I definitely, you're allowed to talk about drug dealers unencumbered. You can roast them all day. You can say you want them in jail forever, deported. I don't ever get pushback for that. I think the meme is not a drug meme. I think. Well, Salama, you blocked 20,000 people. That is part of it. <laughs> that is definitely part of it. But uh, I, th- I, I just, I think the meme is actually a victim meme. So we, we talk about drug addicts as victims. So you're allowed to go after the dealers, but not the addicts. And, and so maybe it's the, the real problem is once again, maybe the high level problem is one of, um, uh, what is the phrase I'm looking for? Self-ownership, accountability, even like the, the idea that you're in charge of your own life. That is really, 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 really a radical thing to say, actually. And I think that's the thing that you're not allowed to argue that, you know, if there's a fentanyl addict in the street, it's okay to be a little bit mad at him if he's, you know, shitting in the middle of the street in front of kids because, yeah, he's a victim kind of, but that's not an, it's like a victim of what, of your own decisions. It's not enough. You're still breaking the law. Go to jail. Um, I think that's the piece. That we're in San Francisco, you see that now? You see people- No, I'm saying that's the piece. I think that it's not the drugs. I think it's the victim thing. They, it's, they're, they're seen not as like live and let live. It's like they're seen as victims. Their addict is a disease in a way that alcoholism is a disease, but they have no problem saying drugs are bad. Most of these people now are not even drinking. They're totally, I think that's a problem. Joylessness. We got to get back to drinking. Is is the first. <laughs> well, they're not drinking, but they're but they're microdosing some other stuff to get them. Like 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 this is this is the thing where I do think so many of the people who sort of embrace the the kind of San Francisco culture who could potentially turn the tide on this like have their own issues of okay like libertarian drug use is fine, and so it's going to be almost impossible for them to to like get at the root of why San Francisco is rotting. Because it it is just the 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 open air drug markets. Like if you clean those up, everything gets fixed. Okay, I'm I'm going to take the SF bear case like I typically do. I think one of the key unlocks that we know everyone here I think has read the book Season of the Witch, which yeah. is a great history of of San Francisco. So it's it's an it's an incredible book from a slate writer, um, and it to me it was a key unlock to understanding San Francisco. And just to summarize, what is a very interesting book very very quickly, um, the rise of like the summer of love in the '60s drug culture coincided not just with like by the way, created what we see today. Like this, this business of there being druggies in the street and general civil disorder is not new at all. It's been, it's, it's existed basically continuously since the sixties. And I remember too, it's funny, everyone's complaining now and it's true, it's worse, but I've been in the San Francisco Bay Area for 20 years. There's no golden period, right? I came in 99 and it was kind of a shit show then too, not as bad as now, but it was still kind of a shit show and unusual in the American sort of urban schema. But that, that drug culture always co- also coincided with Stuart Brand, the maker culture, whole catalog, Steve Jobs was here. Like a lot of the weird independent experimental culture Burning also Man. started then. Burning, the the Burning Man. Yeah, yeah. And so how I've reconciled myself to San Francisco, I personally, I mean, I love that people are that, Solana, you're going to try to fix it. And I think you absolutely should. How I've recognized, reconciled myself to it, though, is that SF is basically a Petri dish where every wild, crazy idea in the American like political zeitgeist gets tried out. And whether that means letting people like basically shoot up in the middle of the street and shit in the muni stop or build, you know, autonomous vehicles or have this crazy startup thing like whatever man you're just here you have an entire city with basically nothing else going on in which you can just go and do this wild experiment and let's see what comes out of it and that's just kind of the attitude and i have a hard time seeing this i i have i have a hard time this you know having like a giuliani moment in which like in new york it suddenly goes back to this thing. and i agree with you about a lot of the stuff especially the crime always kind of or the whole like the people druggies and stuff being outside i think that's kind of probably not spoken enough about because it's politically disadvantageous. You know, it's always been sort of true, but now we have an opportunity to fix it. So we're trying to do that. I think that the problem is you, it's not really an experimental place anymore in a lot of ways. It's you have these bureaucrats who have really taken control and you have 
the sort of nonprofit industrial complex has gained a lot of power. Um, I remember during like the tech days, it's like constant new laws. And there was this weird, I don't know, I have to go back and check out what happened when it was in San Francisco. But it was this council that was there to approve new technology, which was super, this was five years ago, I think. I got it. I need to go and Google this. But it I remember, was when the scooters came The out. scooters. Yeah. yeah. It drove them. It broke their brains. They were like, you're just scooting around. How can you do this? And that's a different kind of city, right? Like that's, that's very, it's not the experimental place anymore. If it was just that and you had the, it was just pure anarchy, there'd be something kind of romantic about that. I think. Well, so one, one thing I think worth pointing out, Solana, because I think you made this statement that, you know, we've made all this money here. Like, how are we taking over? I, th I do think that there's um, two things. So one is actually a recent phenomenon that the startups and, and like tech itself was in San Francisco, right? Like even up until 2010, everything was in the peninsula. Like, so I think with the, the advent of YC, which is ironic, given that it was still in the peninsula, you had all these young people, they didn't want to live in, you know, Sleepy Palo Alto A because it's also super expensive or Mountain View. And so then they ended up moving up to the city. And so you got Dropbox and Airbnb and Stripe and Coinbase and all these, you know, kind of 2010 startups in the city. And, and so two things happened, which is kind of interesting. One, you actually don't have that many billionaires who've made money in tech in San Francisco. You have a lot of old money in San Francisco, like the, the Gettys or, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, and and you, you, do, you do have some, right? It's like uh, Mark Pincus was there, David Sachs, the, the, those kind of folks. You have a lot of like kind of um, people who are like wealthy, but not like mega, mega. And, and I think that the second thing is there's a natural progression is as soon as you get your kids to school age, and, and especially with the kind of like Lowell getting shut down or whatever, is there's a natural migration down the peninsula, right? It's like, if you're really wealthy, you just moved to Atherton or, you know, and, and so I think that there's actually this kind of weird thing where it's like, you have a lot of really wealthy professional managerial class folks in San Francisco, but they're actually so focused on like trying to get promoted or, or, you know, getting the next part of their career milestone versus the really, really wealthy who are kind of like post-economic have the ability to say, Hey, what do I want to do in terms of policy? You know, they, they're just like, why, why am I going to go spend my time on San Francisco when I can potentially influence national politics like Peter or, or David Sachs or, or other things like that? So I, I, I do think that the challenge and, and even with that last crop of companies I just mentioned, I would imagine Brian Chesky is probably the only one of that like billionaire class from the last 10 years who's still really an SF. I think a lot of them have moved, right? Like I mean, Sachs, is it, we, he, we, I just had a conversation with Sachs at Miami Tech Week on stage. I was interviewing him and he had this really interesting, because he is involved locally a lot and he has an idea in San Francisco. And his idea is basically all of these companies and you're right about, I think all your problems, I mean, those are, that's all basically correct. But he was like, everyone should have a tithe, basically. You, every single, if you're in San Francisco, you should be agreeing to one month's rent. You should be giving it to someone like GrowSF. And the intention specifically is to take over politically, to be running it better and to, to actually have some political power. Um, but he's in. And there are, I think the, the Collisons are, I feel, I feel like the Collisons are active. Uh, but they, I don't think they're in SF. I think they moved. I think most people have moved. They left. They left. I, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't actually know them. I, I have a hunch of where they do live now. And I just don't think it's outside. I, I think people quietly just leave. And, and then obviously Stripe moved their, their headquarters because of the stupid tax they put in place. Square, really well company, moved their headquarters. Coinbase moved the headquarters. And so like, I, I think that the challenge with SF is you don't have the, 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 the really mega rich person who's trying to influence policy, Mark Benioff. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he's going the opposite way, right? He 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 doubled the 
he passed the tax on all the startups to, to increase. Publicity. That was years ago, though. Again, that was, only that was all ago. happening at a time when no one was activated. Yeah, Just maybe maybe change it. I mean, Gary Tan, Gary Tan is actually trying to save the city, and he's completely in the arena. I remember, Dan, it's funny you mentioned the 2010 as a flippening. PG, I went through YC in 2010. PG was still giving the advice, don't move to San Francisco. It's a total waste of time. And we all moved to San Francisco. <laughs> but it, it is worth reminding people that Silicon Valley historically did not include San Francisco, actually. It's, it's a yeah. post-2010 phenomenon. And the rest of Silicon Valley can do just fine, but this is... <laughs> Founders Fund was located in San Francisco always it's from 2004. And when it was in San Francisco, it was done as a contrarian move. Peter was like, we're going to leave all that bullshit behind and we're going to do something in San Francisco, which is so funny because he becomes, you know, 10 years after that, the absolute loudest and first, I think really like big exit guy. He was like, these people were, this was before even Trump. He was like, this city is dangerous. And there are people outside of his house and shit. And he was like, fuck no. And he's been on a, on a tirade against it since, which makes our conversations difficult because I'm like, but can we save it please? And, and Founders Fund is in the Presidio, which is federal lands. They actually take uh, crime a little bit more serious there. Well, people forget that the vast majority of venture firms opened their San Francisco office right before COVID. Like, like this, you know, 15 years after Founders Fund, if Founders Fund was founded in 2004, 2005, decided to, to be That's in crazy. I didn't, I didn't even think about it. But I do, yeah, it is. I, I do remember people moving up. Those years were wild. It was like 2013, 14, 15. It just seemed... I guess that was just what a bull run feels like. <laughs> so, so you can track actually the tech progression in San Francisco by the quality of South Park. And Antonio, I know you love talking about South Park. But when I moved to San Francisco in 2013, Instacart's office was there. There were like startup offices still there. Twitter had been right there. And so that was like the heart of Soma. And over my time in San Francisco towards COVID, things dr gradually drifted towards Market Street because of just like the companies were getting bigger, wealthier, like they were in actual office towers. And then all of the offices on South Park turned into VC offices, yeah. Yeah. right? So the VCs wanted to show that they were cool and they were on South Park. And South Park was, it became like kind of like a wasteland or it's like, it was just VCs. And then you, you came back after COVID. I think I went once. It was just like all home. It was like a day after tomorrow. Like you didn't want to be in South Park. Yeah. It's, it's got Antonio, a I think you're I, right there right now. I'm, I'm literally, I could take this cricket bat and bat a fucking ball right through Lightspeed's window and General Catalyst's window. I'm literally across the street from the Blue Bottle on 2nd Street. Um, which is the only reason why we're here is because it's so cheap because there's so much vacancy. In fact, our neighbors it, are actually two, two kids from Wisconsin that live in the fucking office. They gave them a residential lease. That's how desperate they were. But Dan is completely right that it's just full of VC offices and they're all getting renovated, by the way. So I, yeah. it's a little bit better than when you were here. It's a little bit better than COVID. And in fact, I think SF is back. Rex took over what used to be South Park Cafe and they just have like this random vanity cafe. But January, January, 2020, South Park was the most expensive real estate per square foot in the city. Like it was the most, and that's why VCs got like VCs did it. It was like that they were the only ones who could afford it. And so now that it's like the, the cheapest real estate in the city, I mean that's like that's a that's a far fall for three years. Are you bearish or bearish or bullish? Uh, as a, well, no, as a tech thing, I think I'm I'm bullish on SF. Like the talent's still here. As a normal sane city for normal people to live in, I'm very bearish. What about um, the next 10 years? If tech's there and they're building another generation of companies, that seems like another I, chance to me. But, but you have to, to, to your point before, you have to get the tithe because otherwise, if you're a startup founder who hasn't made money, you're just focused entirely on your startup. You don't care about local politics. I think if you're changed a that perception. I think everyone, even people in this chat, I feel like everyone is like, you've, you've reassociated. People understand that you have to be engaged locally. And if you're not, it's like the, the day after tomorrow is what you get. It, it is really bad. 
So who is the Mark bon- the base Mark Benioff for San Francisco? I mean, I think it might be Sachs. Great. So if he can rally, I think that the challenge with Sachs is he's going to have a hard time getting centrists to to support him. Right? You can't support DeSantis and then have a, like a kind of like centrist liberal in San Francisco be willing oh, to get Austin, Ryan Peterson always down for anything that he can that he can help with, like. Uh, Gary Tan, David Sachs. Yeah, Gary Tan is actually, he's a Democrat. So De- Gary Tan is one I would say, if you can get Gary Tan to build a coalition of people, which I think he's doing, then then it has a bigger shot. But when are they going to do it for real? Like Bloomberg actually ran for mayor. Like, I mean, I, I love Gary Tan, but I, I don't think he's going to like quit his VC. His well, he just life. got a new job. Mayor, so. man. We, need, we, need, we need just the, the groundwork first because mayor doesn't matter, right? So like we need all those board, we need to focus on Putting people in the board of supervisors first. Town hall needs to be filled with people who we who are sane. Let's just start there. Ground floor, like sanity check, doesn't think crime should be legal. Great. Let's just start there. And then, then we can talk about mayor. You're gonna run in District Three, is that right, Solana? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, five. Which is Dean Preston's, whatever Dean Preston is in. It was five. It was five, but he just got redistricted into the tenderloin. And so that's been amazing because it's totally fucked by drugs. And he's got to be like, but drugs are great. It's just this weird thing that's not going to work. I think he's going to get voted out. I I think it solves itself in 15 to 20 years, just because I think that the reality of California with Prop 13 and the inability to build housing is there's no democratic socialists who can afford to buy a house in San Francisco. And when they come on the market, they get bought by a professional managerial class person who, who is there just a moderate liberal for the most part. They, they kind of, their political beliefs are beamed down from the New York Times. And I think at that point, you get enough people, you get enough of the crazy people out of the voting block, then the city takes a more centrist point of view. I don't think it's ever going to be kind of like a Republican paradise, but I think it will be a more properly governed city. It's just going to take time. I think you have to just like filter those people out who are living on property tax rates that were set in the seventies. The other problem is we're in, we have an entire class of people who are not paying for rent. We keep building. It's a very slow process, but year by year, every year that passes, we have more one bedroom apartments filled with people who are not paying. It's like San Francisco just keeps, it holds on to people that way and they all vote. And I don't, that's a weird problem. That's really not reported on. That is where most of our money for homelessness goes to. And I don't understand that seems like it's going to come to a head eventually in a way that is unavoidable and disastrous, especially now the tech money's not there. The, the other the other thing is like, it, it's kind of BS. It's like there are plenty of people living in rent controlled apartments that have jobs at Google. Like, <laughs> well, this is not rent control. This is not even that. This is, this is some You're other. You're saying the homelessness. This is their like home anti-homelessness program. That's the philosophy. Of, that's why this shit exists. It's because the hardcore leftist philosophy on homelessness, the reason they're anti-shelter is because they believe that everybody is entitled to a one-bedroom apartment. Everyone should have a, their own one-bedroom apartment. And so all of the funds and all of the resources go towards that goal. It's everyone's on a wait list to get into those. I, I, I actually, you know, horseshoe theory here, I believe that everyone should be entitled to a one-bedroom apartment. Yeah, we should just build more housing. Sure, but like also you're not, well, entitled maybe is the, the problem that I have. How about, yeah, so I don't believe in entitlement. I believe that everyone should be able to afford a one-bedroom yeah. apartment. Here's a contrarian view. I think homelessness is a total misnomer. It's not like if you're literally, if you have met severe mental illness or severe drug addiction, getting you a house is not going to solve anything. It, it, we can put you in a house, but you're just going to terrorize your neighbor and ruin the house. Like there's actually a deeper moral rot here. And framing it as like a real estate problem is one way of avoiding what would be a moral judgment that I think secular liberal society is unwilling or unable to make. I, I agree with you, Antonio, on Season of the Witch being like the actual 
right mental model for how San Francisco is and always will be. It will always be crazies. It will always be people who are completely open to this sort of drug philosophy. And and it's fine when you, you're dealing with marijuana. It's not fine when you're dealing with fentanyl. And to your point, like you can't just talk about like building more housing in San Francisco is going to fix the problem because there's a whole philosophy that's existed since the 60s that let live and let live is the way that we're going to build the city. What is the American dynamism approach to getting rid of fentanyl? It, it is a really good question. I know you have, you and I have talked extensively about the first book. Dreamland. Dreamland, yes. Um, which, I, which I haven't read his, his second book. But like if you read Dreamland, which, which you should give the overview of, it is like the most depressing read that I think I have ever read. I, you know, I started, I started reading it um, with this question of can tech help to, you know, help to get access to Suboxone? Can it help? Um, you know, deal with sort of the crisis that was existing in 2015, 2016, 2017. Then you add on fentanyl, which is, you know, much more extreme and just the amount that's coming into the country every day. I, I think it was a manageable problem in 2016. I don't think it's a manageable problem now with technology. Like, I don't think it's just going to be a tech company that comes in and says, we're going to increase access to Suboxone or a medical problem where it's like, okay, actually, this is a healthcare issue or a housing issue. Like, I actually think this is a, this is a federal government issue now where anyone who's saying that like there's creative solutions that like the private sector, like I, I actually don't think it's an American dynamism problem anymore. I think it's a federal government problem. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think it's the single biggest problem in the country that no one wants to talk about because it doesn't check the right boxes. And and the book, by the way, is The Least of Us. That's that's worth reading. I think everyone's, when you go online, when is who's not talking? Everyone's talking about the problem. Why isn't it a national issue? See, let's see how much fentanyl comes up in the presidential. The first person who talked about it on a national stage was Hillary Clinton. She talked about it relentlessly because it was Poland, because she knew that people cared about it. Now, it is always a topic. It's just not solved because of our bureaucratic, local, political, whatever. How, how did she? How did she talk about it? Like, like, did she? Did she want to? On some speeches, she was like, "This is a fentanyl problem, and everyone's addicted, and America's addicted on these opioids." And not fentanyl. She talked about opioid addiction. It's being talked about as a as a, a, a disease of despair, healthcare. It's not being talked about as a national security issue where you're going to have to bring in the federal government to stop the trafficking of fentanyl. Like, like that—that th that is something that is so polarizing. And maybe it's being talked about more. But like, Who's talking about sending troops to Mexico. There was one of the back. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, people are. I was just. I was hoping it was someone more reasonable. Like, no, it's still it's still an extreme position. I mean, like. It's still an extreme position. I, that's why I'm saying, like, I, I think five, ten years ago, you could have said it's a healthcare, you know, like you could solve it from a healthcare perspective. You could solve it from a variety of different perspectives. Like, it, it is now a federal government issue um, that it will be decided by the people who are in the federal government making an actual executive order to like take things into their own hands if they want to solve it. Which is why, I mean, it, it, I think I actually disagree. I think it's going to be the issue of the presidential election. Um, I think people are going to be talking about it, but no one wants to talk about the how mismanaged it's been for the last seven, eight years. It's funny that Tom Clancy's last good book, Clear and Present Danger, is about the U.S. Navy going to war with cartels and literally just annihilating the cartels at sea. So, so there's a bill actually in Congress. It's a GOP bill. It's called HALT. So it's related to fentanyl. And I think the, the gist of it is, and, and Biden actually supports it, he wants to classify fentanyl as a class one substance or basically putting mandatory minimums in sentencing. So you have all the progressives who are, are wanting to vote against this. And so I actually don't know the status of the bill. I, I, it's HR uh, 467. But I, that, let's just watch that. And so we can talk about this in three months if that bill gets passed. But ultimately, going back to this idea that like people who are dealing fentanyl should be treated, you know, it, it's no different than dealing poison. The average uh, woke person 
wants to do gun control, but they don't want to do fentanyl control. I think the average woke person doesn't even really believe fentanyl exists. They, I think they, when you get really that crazy and you have this weird framework for the world, you kind of think it's like capitalism did that. Those people were specific. It's like capitalism is this poltergeist and it has infected those bodies. And that's why they're, they're roaming around. They can't even, they can't even help themselves. I don't think, I really don't think they believe it's a problem. I think they believe it's, it's systemic, something else. Right. So, so fentanyl, like the, the person who is dealing fentanyl, the, they're incapable of understanding that this thing is it, also capitalism. They have it, it's eat. no different than marijuana, right? Like we, we too much drug incarceration. They're drug workers. They're not <laughs> drug dealers. To bring this uh, full circle, the strongest proponents of, of liberal arts will say things like, hey, everyone here studied liberal arts and is really successful. And you learned this meta skill. You learned how to, how to learn. You learned how to think. You learned critical, critical thinking. Um, so it's important for the individual in ways that are intangible, uh, indescribable, ineffable, et cetera. And it's also important for society in that, you know, not just everything is about making money, to quote Antonio. Um, and it's about the idea. I said that? Okay. Well, before you changed, I'm, I'm just kidding. Okay. What you learn in the humanities, whether it's philosophy, whether it's, uh, you know, English degree is somehow better for democracy at, at large. So let's one more time, just quickly debunk either of those. Um, before we uh, before, before we close out, because I don't know if we did. Dan, you studied English. Catherine, you studied international relations. Did you not? Your amazing writers, thinkers, did it not prepare you in some way that you're not seeing? Oh yeah, I mean, I I I I was the one who went back to school ten years after I declared, um, realizing that I needed to change careers and that I needed to learn something useful. And everyone makes fun of MBAs. I do too. But like, I grinded so hard in my MBA learning finance. Is that where you met Trey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I met you. That's how I met you. So we found our yeah. That's yeah, but like I, I grinded hard. I worked two jobs. I went to every office hours. I would talk to every finance professor. I like did not waste time. I was like, I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. And I wish I had done. I wish I had done it ten years earlier. I like I, I don't see a reason why we should tell people you can you know waste your twenties and then you'll you'll figure out what your career should be at you know late twenties early thirties and then and then you can move on like that that to me is the the most dangerous thing. I so agree with the twenty thing that you said uh and you tweeted this too I think you were talking about the the twenties as being a did you tweet it or was it in the podcast I saw of yours you were talking about the the idea that your twenties are a place for experimenting and things like this and figuring yourself out is a really dangerous meme I agree. Everything that you do in your 20s compounds and everything that we all are in our 30s is resulting the things that decisions that we started making in our 20s, early 20s. Like it's not a time to screw around. And maybe the worst thing about college, those first four years, is not the cost, but the opportunity cost. It's funny, Kathy. I was going to set the analogy. You mentioned MBA. I had to look up your MBA. So I guess you went to Stanford GSB. I, I also make fun of MBAs. At Goldman, we used to call them mediocre, but arrogant. And they would rarely get hired, at least at, at, at Goldman. But it probably is worth doing for the same reason that elite colleges are worth doing. It's for the network. And if you're doing a career transition, going from thing A to thing B, or just like a life transition, thing A to B, thing B, and you're going to one of the top like five schools, probably is worth doing, actually. The MBAs that work hardest are the true career transitioners, and I would actually say veterans. The veterans who are getting out of the military, who decide to get an MBA and to get in one of the top programs, I mean, they are like, they grind. They're like, not going to waste these two years of actually learning, like learning hardcore finance, learning like exceptional. So I'd say like for, for some people, for the vast majority of people who do it as a vacation, like if, if, you're, if you're going because you want to figure out who you are as an individual, you're probably not going to get much out of it. But if you're going because you're like, I am, I'm going to like go to every finance office hours and, and I'm going to change my career, it can be very useful. I, I have a blog post because I, a ton of people would ask me, should I get an MBA? And like uh, I've convinced a decent number of people to not who, who didn't necessarily need to do a career transition or whatever. 
they ended up staying at Coinbase and making a bunch of money. So I'm glad that I give them that advice. But the, the number one reason I think of it is, is like, if you, you're actually doing a career transition, I think that it's an amazing, you know, you did Teach for America, you were in the military, and like, now you want to actually get into business. It's an opportunity to actually get these actually very gated entry-level jobs in consulting and finance, which can actually have a big career trajectory. I think, Eric, to your, to your question, what people conflate, and this goes back to the Lake Wobegon, everyone thinks that they're the special snowflake above average, is what is the policy objective that we should have as a country or like what solving for the median, which is that's how policy should work versus the outlier. And I think everyone loves to, to back rationalize with, with the $200,000 in debt. Oh, but I, I learned how to think or, or it worked out for me. And fine, you want to think that you're that special snowflake. If it works out for you, great. But the reality is there's a decent chance you might be in the middle of the curve. And so therefore, like, that's not actually what you should be optimizing for if, if the government is not willing to spend the money. And I think that that's the issue is, is if the government is, is willing to subsidize this, then you kind of have the luxury of being able to do, do this and come up with the reason that you were able to think and then muddle along. But if you actually made it a free market thing where someone had to make the, the economic decision to say, do I want to go $200,000 in debt with an English major? I don't think you'd, I think it would, you would plummet to zero. So, so it, it's, it's a distorted market. It's our favorite chart where as soon as the government touches something, the costs go up and, and you get weird effects. What people would say is that distortion is helpful because it's, it's a public good. It's better for society that these people do that. You think a bunch of underemployed English majors is anything good for society? Maybe it's good for the Democratic Party, but like, I, I don't actually think like anyone's being like, oh, gosh. I guess say more, what is the connection between the English major and the Democratic Party? Like, What's what do you think out? the percentage of, of English majors who vote for Republicans? Is it something they learn in their English degree? It, the English degree at this point is not even like great books. Like what percentage, of, what percentage of, of uh, an English major in the U.S. today is reading Shakespeare, Milton? Like it's not. I, I think they, they, they're idealistic and they believe in, in they, they do think of the great. Maybe they're not reading the great books, but they want to read the great books. They care about culture. They care about America, and for many years, maybe even to this, uh, less so recently, but certainly when I was in college, when all of us, I think, were in college, the Democrats were the only party that really had a vision for what they wanted the um, future of America to believe. It was a progressive worldview. They, they had an idea of change, of making it great. Of, and, and even if it was you disagree with what the vision was, they had one, whereas Republicans were really dominated by not spending money, not doing anything, you know, like t not touching anything and letting people sort of like exist and maybe freedom is a value you care about but i don't think it's i think it's there's something about like we're going to do the following it's not apollo right it's not the manhattan project that is you had a vision for the future and that's really inspiring and i think idealistic type people are swayed by a vision part of the reason why i nannied was because i was like well that will give me time to write there are a lot of people who are waitressing nannying dog walking like doing that kind of work because they have the vision that like Solana's talking about which is like i'm going to be the next david foster wallace and i think it's great like i actually think we need more people to dream that big like i'm going to write the next great american novel i'm going to go to hollywood i'm going to write the scripts but like we actually know intuitively that that's zero sum there are not many people who are going to make it like we wouldn't tell everyone go become an actress like like no one gives that like actually society tells you the opposite it's like actually you don't need to go to juilliard for every, you know, who's the who's the actress who just won the Oscar for um, Jessica Chastain, for every Jessica Chastain who goes to Juilliard and is an exceptional actress and who uses that degree in order to get into Hollywood. There's like, you know, Margot Robbie from Australia 
who just happens to be gorgeous and, and handpicked by Leonardo DiCaprio and gets her big break. Like, like everyone knows that it's luck with acting, but we do not say the same thing when it comes to degrees of other kinds. And so I think that's the myth. Like, you know, like if you want to become David Foster Wallace, that's great, but you have to like know the consequences, like the likelihood that you were going to end up like in a prestigious job working for the New York Times as a film critic. It's so low. There's only one film critic at the New York Times. Like there, it's not a job you can aspire to. It's luck. I will say as a great writer, writing is <laughs> success in writing is not luck. <laughs> there are more great writers than there are great jobs. Yeah, no, that's yeah. You're, what do we do about this lead over? I'm not, I'm not saying it's not hard work. I'm saying it, it, it's exceptionally hard work for the likelihood that you will likely not get a job. But also the market in writing, like the demand for good writing has decreased. And, and like, that's my, I mean, maybe television writing is like high status that you can do it. But like, I think writing a great American novel. Yeah, this is, is like great. a whole other podcast that I would yeah. be happy to do. But I don't know that you're right. I think 10 years ago, it was way bleaker than it is now. And at least now there are people who are eking out like actual livings, writing interesting things. Whereas 10 years ago, your job was go to BuzzFeed, write some bullshit. Yeah, Substack has totally changed. I, I think Substack and sort of writing on the internet has has changed that. But but I think like the the sort of elite writing career, sort of elite press, sort of elite, like those jobs are declining. I, I think the median, and so that's policy to me, is the median writer in anything that they're doing is is going away. And especially now with ChatGPT and these language models, I, I think like over the next 10 years, the best writers will be better and the median writers will be replaced. I just hate reading robots. I hate it. I hate it. Every time I see someone's stupid fucking play on Twitter, it's an immediate pass for me. I don't think it's clever. I don't think it's cute. It's all the same joke. Grimes said something interesting about art. She said, these don't even read as, they don't, the, the thing is, she's super pro all of this stuff. They don't read as different pieces of work. They all, they read as if they are a body of work by one artist. And the artist is this, it's for its mid journey or it's, or it's open AI or whatever else. Um, and that's how I feel about the writing right now. I'm sure it'll change, but right now that's just, I'm, I don't, I'll, I'll, I'll wait. I'll reserve my judgment until I see something that is actually pleasant to read. I wrote this piece about how the tech clash was a media phenomenon. You know, Mike, you've been talking about this for, for forever um, and not a public phenomenon. And it got roasted on Hacker News by tech people who were criticizing tech. And, and I remember that, oh, so much of the, of the hatred was not just public, but it was actually like intra. It was, it was within tech. And it's funny because a lot of, I bet most of those people are humanities people. Like all, all, you, all the ethicists that work at these companies are humanities people and they're all anti-tech. Like you don't see ethicists at Google who's a transhumanist or like, you know, English majors who are like super pro-tech. And so like, what is the connection between people who study the humanities um, or, or take ethicist jobs or ethics jobs at these companies and are anti-tech? I don't think it's even about what they studied. I don't think that you're right necessarily about all of them being, I would love to believe that it's just like these annoying English majors who are at tech being anti-tech, but I don't think it's, I think it's a broader problem than that. And I think mostly what it's a problem of, I think when you have a lot of money and you hire a lot of people and most of those people don't have jobs, they don't have meaning in their lives and then they look for it in other ways and they be, they start to hate the thing that's paying for them. And I think that was the, I think that was like the, the deep problem that tech was facing up until the last couple of years is just a sort of self-hatred rooted in the fact that most people working at these jobs knew that their work was meaningless. And not because the company was doing meaningless work, but because they didn't have enough to do. I think they didn't have enough to do. It wasn't exciting and they, they, they felt sad in their lives. And when you feel that way, you have to blame something. So they created these strange, like abstract concepts to attack. And the tech industry, big tech was... So what wrong. do we do with those people? What do we do with surplus? Fire them. And Fire them. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> what happens? What, what do they do? 
I, so I would agree. I would agree with Solana here. I, I don't think it's limited to degrees. So to be clear, using Hacker News as like a barometer for tech sentiment is a little bit biased. Uh, Hacker News, although I love it, YC at Tetra has become and has always been a little bit of a, you know, the entrepreneurs or the tech haters actually more than tech itself. Like I don't know many tech, tech builders who actually read Hacker News that much anymore. But I, I think to, to Mike's point, it's like the fancy term is oikophobia, right? It's the loathing of the familiar. And you see it everywhere from anti-Americanism, from Americans who most benefit from the American world order, to techies who most benefit from tech. There's something about our current zeitgeist. And maybe it's just the incredibly high SSRI prescription rate where everyone is grappling with anxiety and depression. But something about it just makes you hate the thing that you are. And I don't think techies are immune to that. And that's, that's, that's what you see among the ranks of many techies who have lost the optimistic vision that characterized tech. This, the endemic self-hatred of this country the West in general is is that the that might be the biggest problem that we're facing philosophically. It does just seem like people. I agree. It's just people really don't like themselves right now, it's and very, that's the future. We just it's people loving themselves. Well, I was gonna, you said Republicans didn't have a vision, and I'm curious if you think there there is a you know competing vision today that is exciting or clear. Can can I go back to the Solana's point for a second? Sure. So my my sense is this is. Very connected to if you go to one of these elite schools or professional managerial class schools, so you have peers who you are seeing do really well and or people who are just like you who are having these extraordinary outcomes and you're kind of like, wait, I did everything right. And this is a very millennial thing where, where you kind of you did all the sports, you did all the extracurricular activities, you got the SATs, you went to the school and then you kind of get into this kind of middle life and it's like, wait a second, well, why am I no longer the main character here? And and you don't have religion or and you're probably not living close to your family because you've moved to one of these kind of coastal cities where the jobs are. It's just it doesn't sound very Lindy. It sounds pretty pretty awful. I, I think we need a solution for what to do with them in the same way we need a strategy for how to handle incels because if we don't handle them that they'll make life living hell for everybody. Well incels are not going to reproduce. So I think we don't have to worry about that trend continuing. The elite overproduction psychology, though, like, like that Dan's talking about, is really important to understand. We did grow up in a generation where we were told, like, you win the trophy if you participate. You are the main character. You are exceptional. Like, everything about you is interesting. And it turns out, now at midlife, not true. Like, not true. <laughs> Except for Solana. I do want to just, like, we got to get this straight. So It's true for some of us. <laughs> but, but I do think the biggest difference between our generation and our grandparents' generation is that, like, our grandparents' generation just did stuff. They didn't really think about it. They were, and they were thinking about it, too, in terms of, like, everything will have worked out if my, if my children are better off than me. How often do you hear 35, 40-year-olds saying that? Like, that the, what they are working for and living for is the next generation that will outlive them? Like, no, it's, it's mostly about like, how interesting am I on Instagram? Like, am I the main character? Am I like moving up my rank in society? Do I have high status? It's not about the family unit. And Eric and I talked a bunch about this uh, previously, but like, I, I think this is like the real issue is that if you're thinking in terms of, am I bettering off my family? You stop thinking about yourself when you hit that point that Dan's talking about. But if you're still in the millennial, like I am super interesting and I want everyone to know how great I am. Like the misery just overcomes you. Hasn't it been, it's been getting this way. It's modernity, right? Hasn't it, it's just like decades have led us but to this. But I think it's millennial. The average thing. age of, of people having kids is, is later. Like to Antonio's great line of like, you haven't really lived until you've buried a parent and birthed a child. Like I, I think your perspective changes quite a bit once you've moved to that part of life. And you're a little less main character focused. And I think just if kids, people are having kids way later or not having kids at all, you get a whole class of society that are just grumpy. 
And this, I mean, not to introduce a new topic at the very end of it, is why life extension is so dangerous. Because no, we're, we're not, just going to extend, not extend their adolescence into their fucking 80s. And we're going to see only more and more and more of what you see today. But that's whole not, We can't do it now. I have too many thoughts. I'm going to disagree with all of you on this. We should all be living forever. Well, maybe we should wrap here. Did anyone have something they want to say before they wrap? Just that I was kidding about all the special stuff. And I hope the commenters don't think that I'm awful because of it. It's a joke, guys. Calm down. Catherine, did you have any last words? Or you, you got what you no, no, no. Next time, uh, next time we'll discuss the ending of succession. I'll show how useless an English degree is. How much time I have spent with, like wasted on this comparison <laughs> succession and Shakespeare, and it wins me nothing in life except reading Sri Ram. Why did he's for pirate liars? Actually, worth it. <laughs> can, can I add one thing as an English major? Anything written after 1940 is pretty much crap. That's my point of view. Sorry, Antonio. <laughs> I don't totally disagree. I put the cutoff at like the 70s, but you know. okay. <laughs> who was after 1940s? Philip Roth? I mean, Philip Roth, Joseph Heller, most, most, most of Vonnegut. I mean, yeah. Harry Potter. <laughs> don't <laughs> knock. Don't knock. <laughs> JK. Okay, on, on that note, uh, thanks, Solana. Thanks, Catherine. It's been fantastic. Thank you guys for having us. SecureFrame is the leading all in one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.